Well, I've shared this before, uh, and if you know me, if you've been around this church for a while, you know that I love movies. I love cinema. Actually, when I was in my undergrad years, I wanted to direct film. That was what I thought I wanted to do. I wanted to travel the world and make documentaries. That went nowhere. God had a different plan for my life, but that's what I thought I wanted to do. Uh, my wife and I like to joke uh, that when we got married, uh, we had two different collections in our house. I had a collection of DVDs, and then we brought together this collection of books. I organized the DVDs in our house by director's last name, which is the correct way to organize your DVDs. My wife organized the books by color, and neither of us could ever find the other person's organization. That's how, that's how, that's how it worked. However, with movies, there's, there, there's a, one of my favorite types of movies are movies with a twist ending, right? Think of movies like the great movies of the past with a twist ending, like Planet of the Apes, right? You think of Planet of the Apes. The, the point of a twist ending is that it's, the, 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 the ending is obvious if you know it all the way through the movie, Clues are being dropped all throughout the movie that you should pick up on what the twist ending in but is, but then the end comes, and the twist ending happens, and, and all of a sudden, it, it paints the entire movie in a different light. You suddenly see all the scenes through the proper lens, that it was all there in the first place. If you just had eyes to see it, if you were just looking and knew the clues, you never would have missed it. But great twist ending movies, the plot's revealed in the end, and you go back and you say, how did I miss this? It was right in front of my eyes the entire time. The resurrection, in some ways, is like that great twist ending on God's story. It unlocks the entire Old Testament, but then it also unlocks your life. When you begin to understand the resurrection, it begins to unlock pieces of you, pieces of your story, of, of the way your story has been knit together, of your experiences, of, of why things happened in your life the way they did. It's only when you fully understand the resurrection that you begin to look back on your life and say, how did I miss this the whole time? That's what was happening. That's what God was doing in this. One of my favorite preachers from long ago, a man named Charles Spurgeon, he says, the resurrection is the cornerstone of the entire building of Christianity. It's the keystone of the ark of, this, of our salvation. It would take a volume to set forth all the streams of living water which flow from this one sacred source, the resurrection of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But to know that he is risen and to have fellowship with him as such, as such, communing with the risen Savior by possessing a risen life, seeing him leave the tomb, by leaving the tomb of worldliness ourselves, this is even still more precious. He's touching on something very important there. And as we begin, I want to ask you, has the resurrection taken a hold of your life in the way that Charles Spurgeon is describing? Has it colored every aspect of your life? Has it provided the, the, the true sense of what you're seeing and what you're experiencing? And has the resurrection impacted you so that you see all of life clearly? I beg of you this morning, if that's not what the resurrection is in your life, if you're coming in here today and the resurrection is something maybe you claim to assent to intellectually, Maybe it's something you say you believe on the peripheries, but if it has not yet sunk in, that it's the resurrection that, that brings clarity to, clarity to every part of your life, perhaps God might form that in you today. I got one kind of big idea I want to work with. It's going to work itself out in, in three main points today, and the idea is this. The resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. 
Let's begin with a story from Matthew chapter 28. Let's read of this first Easter Sunday morning and the first accounts of those who met the resurrected Jesus. Remember, Jesus had been crucified by Roman crucifixion on Good Friday. Many of you were there as we celebrated our Good Friday service just a few days ago. And what that is is reminding ourselves that Jesus died physically on a cross. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Let's go over this and remind ourselves of the story of this first Easter and what happened. Consider these women. These are women who set out on that first Sunday morning in weeping, in mourning. They're going to uh, anoint a dead body, to put flowers and fragrance and spices around the body of their good friend Jesus Christ, who they had just personally witnessed undergo one of the, the worst forms of human torture that we've ever developed as humanity. Sabbath, of course, was the Jewish Saturday was the Jewish Sabbath, which meant he was killed on a Friday. They could do nothing on the Saturday. But the moment they had a chance, the second, it it says it was as dawn, as the sun was beginning to rise, they made their way immediately to the tomb. These women knew that the first thing they wanted to do was be around Christ. But notice, it was a grieving visitation, wasn't it? They were going to anoint a dead body. This love they carried with them, it was a... It was the type of love that's a love because of the loss you've experienced. It carries with it the weight of grief. And you can imagine them and the the emotion that must have been going through their, their hearts and their minds as they made their way towards the tomb as the sun was just beginning to, to come up over the horizon. And then all of a sudden the earth begins to shake. And in the distance they can just see, and, but, but there's this bright light shining near the tomb. And as they look, an angel is appearing this must have been altogether startling. Sometimes I think we read passages like these and, and we think that the people who experienced them in the Bible just had a totally different vision of the world. They saw things, totally, and this would have been completely normal to them. Angels moving rocks aside and guards trembling and earthquakes. And this, they were just like us. Imagine if you on a Sunday morning, all of a sudden where you were going, And an angel appears to you. This would have startled them, which is why the first thing the angel says, and then Jesus says it as well, don't be afraid. Don't fear. This is good news. The angel tells them that Jesus is risen from the grave. They run back to go tell the rest of the disciples, but before they can get back, Jesus meets them on the road. It's quite remarkable. The first people who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection was a group of women. And the reason that's remarkable is because in ancient history, in first century history, that did not happen. 
In first century history, if you wanted to record something that had merit and people would believe to be true, you did not take the account of women's voices and testimonies as proof. That's just not how first century Israel worked. We can look at all the writings of that time and see a woman's voice did not carry the weight of a man's voice. One of the reasons the gospel's recorded this way is not because they're trying to tell you and convince you of something that happened, but they're recording what actually happened. Jesus appeared to these two women And you notice that this language, it says they cling to his feet. I just love that language. There's this this scene of, of them being told that he was risen from the grave, but then they see him, and when they see him, the first thing and the only thing they can do is fall on their feet and cling around him like this and just worship him. Because it's that good. Could it truly be true that he's risen from the grave? They want to grab his feet and feel, is it true? Is there a body here? And they hold on to him and they begin to worship him. And as they're crying and holding his feet, I imagine what's going through their head is no longer would their greatest joy of knowing Jesus Christ be marred by the despair of death. No longer would the rest of their life be marked by a hope that was lost. That's what's happening is they're clinging to his feet and holding on to him. They're, they're realizing in, in greater depth that Jesus was not just a noble teacher. Jesus was not just a, a movement leader. But he was the Messiah, the one whose scriptures had said all from long ago that when he died, he would rise from the dead. And they didn't see it. It was that great twist ending that they should have seen. But they're clinging to his feet in worship. This must have changed everything about their life. How? Well, the resurrection, number one, means Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. It means that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The question we should be asking ourselves this morning is what is the meaning of the resurrection? What's the point of this? Is it just a story that's good for us to know that happened in history at some point? What's the meaning of it? I think the meaning of it can be found in 1 Timothy. There's this wonderful verse. It reads this, 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is one of those kind of summary statements in Scripture that kind of reminds you of a number of the essences of what it means to be a Christian and what we believe about Jesus. But if you look in that verse, see that I highlighted it in yellow for you, that that phrase, he was vindicated in the Spirit? Well, what does that mean? That word vindication It has the idea of proven true or declared righteous or justified. Well, we know that Jesus didn't need to be declared righteous. He was already righteous. He was the the perfect son of God. He completely fulfilled the Torah, all of the Old Testament law. He lived it to a degree that no other human could have ever lived. And so it doesn't mean that he became justified somehow. He was always justified. I think what this verse is saying is that the resurrection vindicates and justifies everything Jesus ever taught and did. It proves that his message was true. The resurrection claims that Jesus is exactly who he was. He was vindicated because he actually rose from the grave. No other human could ever accomplish this. All of us will face the grave one day. I want you to imagine your, your, your favorite professor you ever had in college. Imagine your favorite professor maybe you ever had or teacher you ever had when you were a youth in school. Someone that you just admired and you respected and you looked up to. Now imagine they were teaching you one day and they said, look, all these great things I taught you. And just so you know, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back from the dead as well. That's how great I am. Now you might say, that man's crazy. 
Now, if he actually died and you witnessed it and you saw there was no heartbeat left and then he came back from the dead, there might be some merit to who he said he was and what he claimed to be. And this is how it is with Jesus. He actually rose from the dead. It vindicated them. So the question then is, is, is who is Jesus? Who did he actually claim to be? I think in our culture today, there's all types of voices crying out of who they think Jesus was. Some say he was a great man. Some say he was a crazy man. Some say he was a leader of a religious movement, but that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures claim that, that he was God in the flesh who had come on a rescue mission for us. Revelation chapter one, verse eight. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. John chapter eight, verse 58, Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. But that was a thousand, over a thousand years before Christ. Before Abraham was, I am. He takes on the name of God upon himself. I am who I am. That's the name God gave Moses. John chapter 10, verse nine, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's the door. He is the way to be saved. Colossians chapter one, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Here's the claim that the resurrection makes today. Those are outrageous claims if they're not true. That, that one would claim to be God in the flesh living among us that he would claim to be the visible image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, that he would claim that the scriptures say he sustains the universe by the word of his power. See, the resurrection vindicates these statements. It claims that he is exactly who he claimed to be. Number two, the resurrection changes everything because it means not only that he is who he says he is, but that his message is also true. The resurrection changes everything because it means his message is true. What was the message of Christ? There's a famous parable Jesus told that I think, I think is probably the, the best summary story of what the message of Christ was. Jesus was known for telling parables, wasn't he? It was this way of teaching where he'd tell a story, and if you look into the story, you get these details about what it means to follow Jesus and be a part of his kingdom. The parable I'm thinking of is the parable, parable of the prodigal son. Many of you know this one. I think it summarizes the gospel of Jesus Christ very well. Jesus told the story of an, an older man who had two sons. One of them was a bit of a rebel, and the other one was a real straight-laced kid. And the two of them were these two sons growing up underneath their father's house. And the younger son, the more rebellious of the two, he goes to his father one day, he says, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. And the father looks at him bewildered. He's loved his son. He's done everything he can for his son. This is a... This is a, a bold rejection of his father's love. And the father says, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. And so he, he gets his inheritance together, he gives it to the son, and, and, the, and the younger son goes off and does exactly what everyone knew he was gonna do with that inheritance. He blows it. He goes, he spends it on wild living, he spends it on prostitutes, he spends it on debauchery. Soon he's lost and spent all of it. And he's far away from home, and, and, and he's ashamed of himself. It says that, that he's, he's so hungry because he has no food left that he's actually considering eating out of the pig trough. And as he's putting his head down to the pig trough, he thinks to himself, maybe my dad will forgive me. And, and he begins to think through all the things that he's done wrong, how he essentially spit in his father's face by asking for his inheritance. And he's... And it, 
And, and he begins to think, could he forgive me? Is it possible that he could forgive me despite everything I've done? And he says, it's worth a shot. And he begins to walk home. And, and as he walks home, he's got this handful of days journey. And, and he begins to cross over the horizon. But he doesn't know that on the other side, the dad's been looking out the window for him every day ever since he left. And he's looking over the horizon. The dad wakes up this morning and he sees a young man. And he recognizes the form. He recognizes the stride. That's my younger son. And the father does what no respectable father in that day would do. He sprints down his driveway as far as he can get. He sprints all the way to his son. And before the son can even explain and ask for forgiveness, the father picks him up and hugs him and says, I forgive you. See, the message of the gospel is that for, for those who are prodigals, like that younger son, who know the depth of their sin, and, and who wonder, could, could it be that God could look on someone like me and truly forgive what I've done? See, some of you are in this room, and that is your story. You know what the number one thing that stops prodigals from running to the Father is? It's shame. What is shame? Shame says, what I've done is too dark. And if they truly knew, if they truly knew what I've done, they wouldn't receive me. Shame keeps people from walking in the doors of a room like this because they feel dirty. When someone who's carrying that much shame comes in, they feel like they've got to have it together. And then they try to get it together, but then they come in the room and they don't feel like they have it together. And everyone else looks like they have it together. And then they just want to leave because there's this dirt feeling on them. I've heard that story too many times. And I want to point to the prodigal son because what does the father do with all of that shame? He doesn't even let the son speak. He just says, it's already forgiven. Debt paid in full. Don't worry. I love you. I'm just glad you're back. See, Easter's for prodigals, isn't it? For those in this room that say, if you knew what I did, would you love me? And you look to the father and he says, look to Jesus because all the debt was paid on the cross. You're loved in full. There's nothing you got to keep hidden from him. It's for prodigals like us. The story doesn't end there, though. There's the older son to deal with. The story has two sons. He's got the prodigal son, then he's got the straight-laced kid. And the straight-laced kid sees the father wake up in the morning, and the father comes back and goes to the straight-laced kid and says, hey, son, kill the fattened calf. We're throwing a party for the younger son. He's back. And you know how the older brother responds? The older brother comes and says, Dad, I followed you my whole life. I'm not a prodigal. I followed the rules. I did what I was supposed to do. You never threw me a party like this. What's going on in that moment? This is self-righteousness. The prodigal knows who he is. Some of us in this room, we were prodigals. Some of you in this room, you were prodigals. You know the depth of your sin. Some of you are the straight-laced kid. And for you, sometimes the gospel is even harder to believe than it is for the prodigal. You know why? Because the number one thing that keeps the straight-laced kid from coming to the cross is pride. Because the straight-list kid's got to learn something. That what he's saying when he asks that question, Dad, why are you throwing a party for him and you never throw, why don't you throw a party for me? What that's revealing is that the wickedness that lives inside the heart of that straight-laced kid is just as deep, just as dark, just as wicked as the prodigal son. It just looks a whole lot tidier on the outside. But if we had a microscope to look at the heart and what was going on in there, if we could see his heart revealed the way God can see his heart, we'd see it's no different than the prodigal son. Both of them are in need of the father's forgiveness. Both are in need of the father's love. Which one are you in this room today? You the prodigal? You the straight-laced kid? 
Both of them need the gospel. Both of them need the reality of Jesus Christ's death on the cross. His blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Fully. Washing it away in full. Whichever one you are when you come in this room today, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, what that means is that God no longer sees your sin. He's separated as far as the east is from the west. He knows it in full. In fact, he knows it more than you do. If you knew all of it, you, would, you, you, you can't even handle all of it. You could not bear the weight of knowing the depth of your sin, but he sees it all, and he bore the full weight of it for you on the cross. See, don't let pride stop you from running to Jesus today. Pride says, I got this together. You don't. You need God. He's got a better story for you. My fear for so many people who call themselves Christians in this city is that when they come in here on Easter Sunday, they come in and they're taking the title Christian without ever really making Jesus Lord of their life and recognizing that they need salvation from outside of themselves. My fear is that so many folks take the title Christian and they come in and they believe that just them being them as is, they're good and God is pleased. But they don't recognize they're one of the two sons and they need forgiveness and they need the cross. Can I plead with you this morning, Easter 2022, might this be the day when you, when you declare, I'm done having Jesus on the margins of my life. I'm done trying to do this and just tack a little Jesus on and think that's what God's called me to. He's called you up to more. There is a life that is truly life. And it's the life of seeing Jesus as Lord over it all. It's the life of having Jesus, the, the greatest part of who you are, your full identity, wrapped up in who he says you are. Not in what everyone else says you are, not in what everyone wants you to be, not in what you wish you were, but in who he says you are. A beloved son, if your faith is in Jesus. A beloved daughter, if you've claimed him as your Lord. See, the resurrection validates that the message of Jesus is true. Lastly, the resurrection changes everything because life can never be the same. See, it changes everything. It changes everything about you. These women, when they, when they met Jesus, and the disciples, a couple hours later that day when they met Jesus, look, Peter, on Good Friday, denied ever knowing Jesus. He was a coward. The, you know, the bold, courageous Peter from the scriptures, the one who was an extrovert like me, and he blurted stuff out of his mouth before he thought about it sometimes. Any of you like me got that problem? Right, that was Peter. You're in good hands in scripture, if that's you, because Peter paved the way for all of us, okay? But on the, on the night when Jesus was arrested, Peter was a coward. He couldn't stand up beside his best friend, beside his Savior. But yet, after he met Jesus on the road, everything changed about this man. In the book of Acts, we see just a handful of weeks later, he's out proclaiming Jesus in the public square and getting persecuted and thrown in jail for it. It's changed everything. He becomes an apostle. He, he, his whole life gets wrapped up in the reality that if Jesus has risen from the grave, all of history is different. Not, nothing's the same. If he really did it, it's not the same. It can't be, I can't wake up tomorrow and my life is not colored by the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. I can't go to work tomorrow and not have my reality shaped by the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. I can't love my kids not underneath the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. I can't love my wife. I can't love my church family not with the reality recognized. If Jesus rose from the grave, everything's changed. Because what it means is he's sealed your own resurrection as well. And he's changed you not only in eternity, but for this life too. It begins here.